We are back in Exodus, and uh, remember uh, when we started Exodus, why did we start it? Because I said Exodus is the paradigm, it's the, it's the schematic, the blueprint of what freedom looks like, okay? So all the way through the New Testament, you see the imagery coming back to these stories right here, and we're going to see a bunch of that today. So Paul says, for example, in Romans 6, when we do a baptism, right here, right, Paul says, you have been freed from the tyranny of sin, the slave master of sin, the slavery to sin. It says it different ways. Why do you keep sinning then? Right? I mean, you're no longer, before you didn't have a choice, but now you do. So why do you keep sinning? Why does that happen? And so the, we all know the answer because we don't know what it's like not to sin. It takes a lifetime to learn how not to do that. It just doesn't come very natural because our world is broken and sinful. And so it takes a long time of practice, and we'll see some of that today. So I raised the question earlier last fall when we started Exodus. When God brought them out of Egypt, why didn't he take them up along the coast road? They would have been in the promised land in 10 or 11 days. Why did he, why did he not do that? He took them across the Red Sea over. So here's Israel over into the Sinai Peninsula, the South Arabian Peninsula. It's all desert there. Why did he lead them out there instead of going straight up the coast road? They would have been in, in the promised land in 10 or 11 days, but they weren't. They wandered. Why did they wander? They wandered for a little while. And I suggested back in the last year that one of the reasons was he wanted to get them away from the influence of Egypt and all the nations of Canaan. They were familiar with So he took them out to the middle of the desert. Okay, well, that's risky because he has to take care of them out there. For example, we're going to see, you just don't find water. You just don't wander around in the desert and find water when you need it. So he, he took them out there to isolate them from the rest of their known world to begin to reshape their identity and to begin to teach them. But now we have a, a section in the wilderness. So this is specifically in the wilderness. Now remember, they haven't met God yet. That doesn't happen until chapter 19. We're in chapter 17 through 18. So they're sitting at Sinai and they're hearing the story of what happened and how they wandered and why did God take them that way. Up until this point, one of the questions about God has been answered, and that is, can he deliver? Does he have power? That's a question they had of all the gods. Why'd they choose a God? If God didn't have power, they didn't care, they didn't want him. In fact, you may remember from the minor prophets a year ago that one of the reasons they turned away from the Lord is he kept letting them lose battles. And so he must not be that strong. So remember the gods of the ancient world, they didn't want to emulate them. They didn't care about that. The gods didn't care about the people. We were just simply slaves to them to do their bidding. And so they all, they chose the God that had the most power. So he answered that question with the 10 plagues and led them out. And now the Israelites have been defeated. I mean, the, excuse me, the Egyptians have been defeated. So that's where we ended. Okay, chapter 15. They sang this wonderful praise song to God and then what happens? They immediately start grumbling. They're kind of like you guys. You, you see God do something great, and you relax, and you turn right around and go and complain. I think it's embedded in our broken, sinful nature to complain. It takes a lifetime to learn how not to do that. And, uh, and I'm still working at it. And so, but one of the questions, they've answered the question on this, God is all-powerful, but does this God care? Does he care? They don't even know to ask the question because you didn't ask that kind of question of the gods. Does he care? And so God is going to start answering the question 
through a series of unique circumstances, the stories you're all familiar with, but I want you to see how they connect to what happened in the New Testament, okay, as the foundation. Because this is the way to true freedom. So they come out of slavery, which is Romans 6 and 7, and then they enter the promised land, which is Romans 8, life in the spirit. That's what Romans 8 is about. But now we have to learn what it means to really trust the Lord. They don't know anything about this God yet. And they're going to have to learn. Okay, so right away, Exodus 15. This is right after they get done singing. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding any water. So they're probably a little thirsty and irritable right now. When they came to Marah, they could not drink. They found water, but they couldn't drink it because it was bitter. That is why the place was called Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses. The people grumbled, right? And they said, what are we going to drink? Okay, they start grumbling right away. Now, I'm not going to read all the grumbling passages, but between 16 and 18, they're in almost every vignette. They keep grumbling. They keep grumbling. And God keeps taking care of because he's trying to teach them something. He wants to shape their faith before he asks them, shape their identity before he asks them to make a promise. So the covenant doesn't come until after this wilderness section. That's why I called this finding God in the wilderness. And what we're going to discover is that you being in the wilderness is a great place. It's, believe it or not, it's the grace of God, Philippians 1. For to you it has been granted, that's the verb for the Greek word for grace, but we don't have a, an English word, a modern uh, English verb for grace. It has been granted, it's been graced to you, not only to believe, but to suffer for his name. Because we're going to find out in this part of the story that the suffering is what makes people turn to God. You know, I met with a guy uh, yesterday morning for two hours. He doesn't go to our church. He's a friend of some of ours. His, uh, he has six children. His wife has MS, and he just found out that she has terminal cancer. They can't do all the regular treatment because of her MS and the medications, so they've given her six months to live. So we sat for two hours and cried together. Okay, his faith is being challenged in a mighty way. Uh, David and Regina sitting right here. I asked his permission. Uh, he may be on the verge of lung cancer. The tests look like it. They haven't got it confirmed yet. But uh, we were together earlier, sat together and just talked. And we, he needs our prayers. David and Regina, most people don't know you. I know you hate this. Stand up so they can see you. I want you to pray for this couple right here. We've been through this, haven't we, as a church? With so many people. Thank you. They need our prayers. They need our love and encouragement. Right now, they're entering into the, some of the deepest parts of life. And this is a, they, they're entering into this desert. And this is where they get a chance to find out what their faith is really like. And I had such a great time with you guys when we met. Uh, but I know you're on a, a journey, a real journey of a challenge. And some of you I don't know about are on the same journey. And so um, we need to be praying for each other and loving each other. And so this is a story of God taking them deliberately into the desert to begin shaping their identity, to prepare them for when he says, this is what I want you to do, which happens next Sunday. And they say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And then they turn right around and start grumbling again. <laughs> it takes a lifetime to learn not to do that, doesn't it? And so 
they do not yet know God, and they're kind of afraid. They're stuck out in the middle of nowhere, and there's no water. They don't, they haven't, they don't know if God cares about them. They only know he's powerful. The other gods didn't care. Why would this God care? And so God takes care of it. This happened repeatedly, just like us. Okay, in Philippians 2, you know what? This becomes a foundation for our Christian walk. Just after he said, let me tell you all these great things about Jesus, and I want you to live like him. Now he says this, do everything without grumbling or arguing, or some of your translations say complaining, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. There's nothing new under the sun, by the way. This generation is just as crooked, okay, as it was back then. Then, then, that's a key word, then you will shine among this generation like stars in the sky. So Paul, of all the sins he could have picked to emulate Christ, he picks the one about grumbling. Because Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus, like a lamb, led to the slaughter and didn't say a word. Didn't defend himself. He said to Peter, don't you think I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to? And he becomes the model for us. Because the moment we start complaining, it says, just like here, we don't trust God. That's what it's telling the people around us. Okay? We don't trust God. And if you really trust God's sovereignty, then you're going to have a different response. Oh, it's okay to say, why me? We talked about that. It's a legitimate question. Why me? That's a, that's a theological question. Okay, that's not grumbling and complaining. That's asking a question. Why me? And I've sat with many folks in our church over the years that are sick to, answer, to help them answer that question. But one of the things for sure, what I've seen over and over again, is that their faith, your faith gets stronger when you go through the desert and the troubles that it brings. So the very first provision is water. And there's two examples in the, this desert period of water. The first one is in Exodus, uh, let me see here, where am I? Oh, yeah. The first one is Exodus 15, 25, right where we were. They grumbled and complained because they couldn't drink. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Or some of your translations say a tree, because that's what it was, probably a branch off a tree. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink, the NIV says. It became sweet. They could drink it. Okay, why a tree? Why didn't God just do that? Why didn't he just hit it with his staff? Why a tree? Okay, Paul knew these stories backwards and forwards. Most likely for he to even be considered to be a disciple under Gamaliel. Remember, Gamaliel had all the young men in Israel to choose from. They were trained from birth. It's probably around 15 or 16 when he became a disciple. He would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament in Hebrew. He probably would have memorized lots of Proverbs and Psalms and other passages. He knew this book. Okay, so the very first thing you see, there's a tree. It is not coincidental that he, because later on the prophets are going to say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And where did Jesus go? Right on a tree, block of wood. This, this lays the early foundation, breadcrumbs. Each of these stories, these vignettes, give us little breadcrumbs to help us see what's coming, okay? Provision. So God took care of them through this provision, but he goes a little bit further. 
in this next part of the verse, then the Lord issue a rule, issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. Yes, guess what? God does test you. How else do you know if your faith is real if it's never tested? It has to be tested so that you can walk away and say, my faith is real. Some of you have heard the story when my first wife died, I was holding her when her heart stopped and I started to cry and then I started to laugh and my best friend was with me and he goes, what? Why, the, why are you laughing? And I said, the Lord just took away the most important person to me and I still believe. Huh, my faith is real. That was a turning point. Because up until then, I was a new Christian when I married her. She was the person of faith in our family. And, uh, and I realized, my faith is real. Wow. After what God just did. And so the testing is important to start building faith. Okay, that's an important part. He goes on. He said, this is what God said. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on any of you, on you, any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. Okay, pause. Think about what he just admitted to. Think about it. God is God and you are not. If you obey, I won't bring the diseases on you that I brought onto the Egyptians. That's why God could say to Moses in Exodus 3, remember that? Okay, Moses is complaining, I'm not very good at speaking. He said, wait a minute. God said, who makes a person blind? Is it not I the Lord? Who makes a person able to speak or not? Is it not I the Lord? God decides. And this becomes important as we work our way through here. So here he takes credit for bringing disease onto the Egyptians, okay? And he says, I am Yahweh who heals you. Okay, so the second time there's a rock is over in Genesis 17. We're still in the desert. We haven't met it yet made it to uh, Sinai to agree to the covenant. But this time it's a little different. Verse, chapter 17, verse 5. The Lord answered Moses. Okay, now the grumbling of complaint. Again, complaint. I'm not going to read that part because there's no more water. They're in a different place now. So the Lord answered Moses. Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Okay, he's introducing something that we're going to see in a minute. He's beginning to introduce leadership and organization into this rabble of slaves. Okay? This motley crew, this group. And he, and he wants the elders to, to be seen by the people as representing God as well. So he says, take the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Okay, why a staff? Last time it was a branch of a tree. Why a staff? Well, because the staff, remember, that was the primary instrument Moses uses before Pharaoh. And the people had already seen it. So the staff represents power. Okay? Power. It's setting the stage for another New Testament idea. It represents power. So take the staff. I will stand there before you. Go by the rock. That's an interesting little phrase. Not a rock. A particular rock. Probably one you could climb on top of so people could see it. Okay, go onto this rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. By the way, Horeb is the same as Sinai. So they're right near the desert there where they're about to hear the, the uh, covenant. Okay, strike the rock. Water will come out of it and you can drink. So Moses did it in front of everybody. Okay. Um, when you look at the water, Jesus 
in John 7 and 8, 6, 7, and 8, he's at, the, he's at the festival of booths, tabernacles. That was a festival that celebrated for eight days long. They moved out of their houses into tents to remember what God, how he had taken care of in the desert, in the desert, okay? They're living in tents. And so they provided water. And so on the last day of the feast, the high priest would grab a golden pitcher, go down to the pool of Siloam, dip it in the water, come back and throw it across the floor of the temple as a libation or an offering. While he's doing that, it's on the last day, Jesus cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. You see, this is the significance of uh, what's going on. And we're going to see during communion, this rock idea flows right into the New Testament. But I'll wait till we get to communion for that. So the first one, it's a tree. The second one, it's a staff striking the rock. Okay, by the way, this is going to get Moses in trouble a little bit later. <laughs> we'll see. Okay, the second provision is food. It's in Exodus chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's quite long. But I want you to see, remember the people were, what were they doing? They're hungry. What are they doing? Grumbling, yeah. We're good at it, aren't we? <laughs> nothing new under the sun. There's grumbling. We have nothing to eat. God says, okay, well, I'll give you something to eat. <laughs> so right in the middle of verse 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, the thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is this? Okay, that's the Hebrew word, man, from which we get manna. What is it? They called it, what is it? <laughs> they didn't know what it was. Okay, they didn't know what it was. That's the next part of the verse. Okay, so why did he do it this way? Because he begins to teach them another lesson. Because you, most of you know the story. For those of you that don't, he said, go out in the morning, collect just enough for your family. Tomorrow, go out and collect just enough for your family. Don't collect a little more. Just what you need for today. Just enough. Just collect enough. Okay? On uh, the last day of the week, or the sixth day of the week, go collect for two days, because you're going to rest on the seventh. But don't collect for three. What did they do? <laughs> they collected more. Why? It's inbred in our nature to not want to trust God. How many of you rely on your IRAs and your 401ks and your investments and your pensions? What is the Lord's Prayer? Give us today our what? Daily bread. And that raises a whole plethora of theological questions, and I'm only going to raise a few of them with you. Then why does God make you rich? And by the way, every one of you here is rich. I don't care what you think. Having been around the world many times, trust me, you're rich. Why did God make you rich? For your own benefit? Absolutely not. It's not based on your ingenuity and your goodness that you get rich and you get wealth as you start accumulating them. That's not it. God says to the prophets, I decide who is rich and I decide who is poor. Why? Why does he choose? What would happen, and I'll be honest with you, this is one of the problems I have with equity philosophy. What would happen if we were all equal? We would need each other. So built into a fallen world is power differential, economic differential. That doesn't mean we need to let it, let it go. But as Christians, we need to reconcile, recognize that the reason why God gives us things is not for us. It's to bless people with it. 2 Corinthians 9, 
to, uh, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the one who sows generously will reap generously. Okay, it's true. The one test you're allowed to do in the Bible to test God is in Malachi. Test me with your giving, he said. See if I don't fill your barns to overflowing. If you've never tested God with money, test him with it. Give it away. I just came from Montana where I have the pleasure of telling my 90-year-old father-in-law, you're not going back home. He lives in an old trailer. It's about to be condemned. It's falling down. And he fell for two or three days, and uh, they didn't find him. They thought he was going to die. We all did. They brought him back to life, and now he's in a rehab facility, okay? So uh, I went down there to talk to him, and he gives me a big hug. He's so excited. He's my first wife's father. He lost four daughters to terminal illness and a wife to diabetes. The man has been through the ringer. And so I did, as some of you saw it on my social media, a short little video. I said, you've lost all these loved ones. What's, what is faith? What does that mean to be faithful? He said, you never give up. So he asked me, when do I get to go home? And I said, look out the window, Gene. It's 12 degrees below zero and blizzarding. In your trailer, you had to go around back to get the firewood. Boy, it really makes you miss going out in the blizzard and getting wood, doesn't it? And he goes, not really. And he looked at me and goes, I'm not going home, am I? And I said, not to that one. Well, when you get healthy, we'll talk about options, but definitely not going back there. Okay, his income for most of his life, uh, for most of his retired life, is $1,500 a month of Social Security. That's all he has. So you know what he does with his money? He writes his rent check, buys a little bit of food, and gives it away. He doesn't have anything. He gives it away. He's done that for decades. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting you do that because Paul also tells us to enjoy the blessings that God has given us. But what I am saying is that you're a steward, not an owner. Don't mistake the difference. If you have IRAs, 401ks, investments, all that, praise the Lord that he enabled that. But it's not for your blessing because 2 Corinthians goes on after Paul says about the sowing metaphor, the one who supplies seed to the sower, God supplying resources to me, is able to replenish and multiply so that you can be generous on every occasion. I say every, I say every other month, I'll say to you when we're doing offering, thanks for being uh, generous. I don't know if you're generous or not. You could be making $100 million and give us 5 bucks. That's between you and the Lord. All I know is you take care of us. But if you think this way, it's mine, hoard it, that's called greed. If you think this is to give away to bless people, that's called generosity. That's what he's teaching them here. Live only on what you need. Every person should ask the question every year, when is enough enough? And give the rest of it away. Every person should Start giving it away. And watch what the Lord does. You cannot give the Lord. You just can't do it. That's what hoarding is all about. Okay? So, at the same festival that Jesus was at, he walks into the temple and he says, I am the bread of life. The manna of life. Where do all these stories come from? Right out of Exodus. If you're hungry, come to me. Just like the water. If you're thirsty, come to me. Do you really trust the Lord or is your trust in your estate? Where is it? This is the way to freedom, by the way. These are the road to freedom. 
really learning to trust the Lord. Well, then he goes, he's not done yet. And then Exodus chapter 17, we have this very intriguing little story built into it. Exodus 17, verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Okay, there's a problem here. The Amalekites, this is a, they don't live in the desert. They're, we're 150 miles away from the desert. We're, I mean, from their home. Okay? Doesn't tell us why the Amalekites came. But they're down in the Arabian desert, and the Amalekites live way up in the lands of Palestine, 150 miles away. What would prompt the Amalekites to come down? And there's a lot of discussion about this in scholarship, but the general consensus is when they left Israel, they looted Israel. They went out with all the gold and the silver and everything they had. And the story was well known when you read numbers that what happened to Egypt was well known among all the nations. So the Amalekites probably said, they got all this wealth. Let's go get it. So they went all the way south to take it from them. Okay, this is a test. Because if they destroy Israel, the military strategy during this time was to kill all the men. Take the women and the gold and the children. Okay? Then God's plan would be thwarted. Israel was needed. They were chosen to bring the Messiah to the world and to be the recipients of God's words, his wisdom. And so this is the first test right there. So God protects them with a very intriguing way. So tomorrow, Moses says, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. You know the story, okay? As long as he held the staff up, they won. As long as he, when he got tired, they started losing. He'd raise it up, they'd start winning, lower to get there. So Aaron and her came and said, we'll hold your arms up, okay? Now that's kind of a puzzling, what's the theology behind that? You see, the staff was what the people saw during the 10 plagues. The staff represented the power of God wasn't Moses' power. It was the power of God. And they saw it. And they knew what it meant because they had just come from the ten plagues. And so they saw that staff. And they see a God who cares enough about them to begin to protect them. He supplied water. He supplied food. And now he's defending them. And so Paul goes on with this in 2 Corinthians 10 and talks about what this true power looks like. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. By the way, the staff went into the Ark of the Covenant to always remind them of God's power. Okay? And so this is what happened. God's power becomes realized through us now through the Holy Spirit. That same power that when he held it up and they started winning, we have that same power to demolish the strongholds of the enemy. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against Satan. That's who it's against, the demonic forces. And we have the tools to do that. So then he goes on, one more, one more provision. In Exodus 18, Jethro, so apparently Moses has sent his wife and children away while he's doing all the stuff with Pharaoh. Now he brings them back. So Jethro's father-in-law brings them back, okay? It's a long chapter. I'm not going to read it. I'm only going to read a couple of verses. And Jethro happens to be sitting there watching Moses. Moses is sitting there all day long for hours and hours and hours while they bring in their problems to him. They bring the problems to him and he starts answering them for who God is. So this is back to get the elders, okay? Jethro says... In chapter 18, verse 17, what you are doing is not good. <laughs> you know 
I mean, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. All throughout the New Testament, there's a plurality of leadership in every church. Elders, deacons. Okay, we have a pastoral staff. We have elders because none of us can carry the load alone. And Moses has to learn that lesson. And the people have to learn it as well. So God provides for organization and therefore wisdom. So in Ephesians 4, God has provided the same structure for us. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to do the ministry. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. To what? What does it say? To equip. To equip you. So you tell me, who's the most important person in the church? Me standing up here so I can impress you or you who's on the front lines every day fighting the battle? I'll guarantee you it's not me. It's you. He gave all these gifts so that the church could be built up and can reflect God's love to a broken world. That's why I want to be a gift to you. You could do what I do. You could go study. I like I studied, but that's not the way God wired most of you. So I really get to be a gift to teach you this and equip you so you can go out and fight the battle and share the love of Christ with people. You're the most important people in the kingdom. It's not me. It's not these gifts. Our job is to equip you. So God has provided organization for the church. So now, the very next chapter, he's going to make a covenant with them and ask them to obey him. Now that they've seen He answered the question they didn't even know to ask. Does God care? Yes. He provides our food. He provides our water. He protects us. He provides leadership and organization to guide us, okay, as the people of God. That was his provision. He does all that before he asks them to make a covenant, a promise. Okay? How many of you are in the wilderness? If you're not careful, when you get in the wilderness, if you get distracted by the wants, the wishes, all of that, you pretty soon lose sight of the God, the sight that the fact that God put you there to teach you about your faith and to grow it, to help you, to bless you. That's really what the wilderness is about. It's a blessing. That's why Paul calls it a grace from God to bless you. Don't be fooled. Don't place your hope in your IRAs, your 401ks, all that stuff. Don't place your hope there. Place your hope in God. Don't place your hope in the right president. Don't do it. Place your hope in God. That is the only hope, is God. So why do we grumble and complain? Because we're learning. That's why. We're learning what it means to be true followers of the one true living God. And and it's very hard to learn to trust him day after day. Some of you have been there. You've lost jobs. You've been in poverty. Some of you, you know what it's like. You can trust the Lord. You can. He doesn't make you rich for your benefit. So I'm about to to ask the ushers to come up and take the offering. And uh, like I always say, Thank you for being generous. Now, whether you're generous or not, look in the mirror. That's between you and God. I can't figure it out. I can't really figure me out. 
Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for entrusting us with your resources so that we can steward them well. Thank you, Lord, for guiding us through the desert so that we learn that you actually really do care. And we're really grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, for protecting us, watching over us. Thank you, Lord, for providing all of our daily needs. All we have to do is ask you, give us today our daily needs. Lord, in your son's name we pray. Amen.